0: Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. On the podcast this week, our senior reporter, Luke Haynes, speaks to Dr. Amy Small, who's a GP in Lothian, Scotland, and has been on the podcast before. This week, Luke's talking to Dr. Small about her work with the Rebuild General Practice campaign, which launched last month and is aiming to raise awareness of the problems facing general practice. Is calling for a plan to tackle recruitment, reduce GP workload and deal with all the other issues that are driving GPs out of the profession, including burnout. Before I hand over to Luke, just a quick message. If you've been enjoying listening to the podcast, please do think about rating us. And don't forget, you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So, today I'm joined by Dr. Amy Small, who is a portfolio GP in Lothian, Scotland. Dr. Small has been a GP for 14 years and was a GP partner up until 2020 before contracting COVID 19 and thereafter long COVID, a situation which she has spoken about before on the pod. In today's episode, Dr. Small will be talking about her work supporting the Rebuild General Practice campaign, which launched last month and calls on the government to provide GPs across Britain with the support they need to offer quality care to patients. The group has today published a video showing the pressures which GPs find themselves under and includes accounts of abuse suffered by practice staff, as well as some bleak statistics. But before we get um, onto all of that, we're pleased to have you on the pod again, Amy. Welcome. Welcome back. Thank you. So I thought, yeah, we'd get started today by getting you to tell us a little bit about the Rebuild GP campaign. What's it all about and why is it happening now?
2: I think what we know now is that general practice is in crisis. Um, we've got this perfect storm of um, long standing underinvestment, um, the, the pressures put on us by the pandemic, um, GP workload just becoming utterly unmanageable, and um, pension. Penalties for older doctors leading to um, early retirement, burnout, um, doctors going off sick. Patient demand is rising with everything that's been going on between people just sitting at home waiting out the pandemic and then the pressure from secondary care and the delays that are going on there. So what this campaign really is about is trying to to highlight what's going on because we're worried that. All of this, in fact, is not only leading to GP illness and, and, and burnout and poor mental health, but also it's affecting patient safety. And we're hitting that critical point now where if we don't acknowledge this and talk about this, mistakes are going to be made and, and people are going to suffer as a consequence.
1: Yeah, for sure. And what sort of things have the campaign done so far? I know we've covered it on GP online, but could you tell listeners maybe um, who aren't aware of the campaign what, what's being done?
2: Well, there was an initial press conference launch with Dr. Kieran Sharrock from GPC UK, who delivered a a keynote speech highlighting the importance of recruitment, retention and patient safety alongside a panel of GPs. And also the campaign was supported by Jeremy Hunt, who's the chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee currently, who echoed the campaign's calls. They've also been working with building relationships between the media and politicians. You know, we've seen Some aspects of the media have been really targeting general practice over the last year and and, and the campaign has been really trying to work with them to try and change the rhetoric there. Also looking at sort of future plans, you know, the the journey's only just begun. There's going to be various activations, drawing attention to the campaign and its important messages, starting with GP videos, explaining the issues that they're having, going on to other things and trying to um, discuss directly with government about the issues
1: that we're facing. Why have you decided to, to get involved personally? And, um, and I guess the other question would be, why do you feel so passionately about this?
2: The I still love being a GP. <laughs> And I'm one of those people that when people say, oh, my child's wanting to go into general practice, should I do it? I keep saying yes, but it's getting harder and harder to say that. I mean, I love my job with a passion. It is a a unique job that that gives us a very privileged position into a person's life and and the continuity of care and all the bits that we get to do in general practice that, that perhaps we might not get to do in other aspects of medicine. But it's getting really hard and it's becoming really unmanageable. And I think the thing... I've noticed is that friends of mine who I've always looked up to and thought these guys are unshakable these are the guys that are going to be there forever these are the partners who are going to go in for the long run I'm seeing them burning out I'm seeing them resigning I'm seeing them go off sick and I think gosh if it's affecting them then wow are we in trouble because these are the people that I thought never never would um swither so I think I'm just I'm looking at the job that I love the job that I want to do well but I can't do as well as I'd as I want to because of the pressures that are happening. And I want to do the best for my patients. And I just feel sad that we're in this situation currently. And I'm just so desperate for us to turn this round and, and make it better so that my colleagues can enjoy their job again and that so my patients can get the best out of me and my colleagues as well.
1: It's been well documented the pressures that general practice is under at the minute. And, and as I touched upon sort of in the intro, a Rebuild GP survey, um, which was going out today, found that more than half of GPs in Britain have lost staff over the last five years due to unmanageable workloads. Um, leading on from that can I sort of ask what sort of pressures you're seeing on the ground?
2: I think there's a combination of things I mean we have to take the pandemic into account and the people being off sick as a due to covid either short-term acute illnesses or long covid and that's meaning that staff you know are working bare-bones staff people are off sick in and out the practice all the time with lack of continuity between reception staff nursing staff it's not just the gps so i've noticed that even in my practice you know there are days when where we're having to send text messages out to patients saying we've only got one doctor in today unless it's really necessary please don't contact us because we're just not able to meet the demands of the patients that that we're facing. So the one thing is a pandemic aspect, the COVID thing, the off sickness because of that. And then there's the illness due to burnout. And the the trouble is you get into the vicious cycle because once one person's off, everyone else is feeling the strain, that stress level then mounts, then everyone else is feeling strained and, and everyone's just working to their absolute limit. But to what cost and I think this is where people are beginning to go off sick people aren't managing to come back from this as quickly as they would and the resilience is lower and chuck into the mix anything else they've got going on their own personal illnesses un- unrelated to COVID looking after uh, elderly parents looking after young children if any of those other things you know and children being off sick from school because of COVID you know you're trying to juggle all these balls that the whole thing together becomes really unmanageable and and this is the situation that we're in right now where there just simply aren't enough of us to do the job.
1: And I think you mentioned earlier sort of there maybe some negative media coverage in in the past or during the pandemic. Just how much of an effect has that had for people?
2: It's so disheartening. You know, you go in and you get in there early and you're working there till way after the phones have switched over. You are seeing patients daily face to face. You've spoken to God knows how many people. You're working your butt off and your family are suffering as a consequence and yet you're faced with this daily attack in the papers telling you that you're sitting at home counting your millions and it just is so disheartening because we're all trying our hardest in the most difficult situation and to have that daily and the problem also is is that patients read that and then believe the rhetoric So they then call up, they're angry. They're all fired up from everything they've seen. And, you know, we've heard the awful stories in the press of a doctor who had his his skull fractured from an angry patient. We've seen, you know, practices having to hire security staff, people putting in extra CCTV. I now even check where where the panic buttons are in the practices that I go and locum in. I never used to do that before. But I'm just, it's just that level now of aggression that's come in because of this, some media fuel campaign to really um take us down, and I think it's just so disheartening because that's that's what we're facing, and then we're, we're we're trying our best and it it's just it's not enough
1: and just on those colleagues that are are sort of either making noises that they're they're going to leave soon or they might retire earlier than they would do when they do leave or for those who have left, what's the effect on those who are left in the job because obviously that's probably massively demoralizing again?
2: Yeah, it's huge because we just can't recruit because there's no one there to recruit. So people are leaving early. So those that are retiring early because of the pensions, you know, they would have stayed on if that hadn't been an issue. Um, Or you've got those who um, are cutting down their sessions. You're then not able to fill those gaps. You know, the pressures then rise on everyone else that's left behind. And just everyone feels guilty. That guilt is overwhelming. And you see it on all the doctor's forums, people who are just burnt out but can't quite bring themselves to go off because... Well, if I do, what happens to my colleague? And then, you know, that constant guilt and people who are off feeling a pressure to go back because they can see how much their colleagues are struggling, yet they're nowhere near ready to come back. This constant, constant cycle of guilt that's going through the system and, and making people more unwell, unfortunately.
1: Is it fair to say that those who might have hung on for sort of, I don't know, two, two or four years longer, are they the type of, of GP who is sort of seriously considering leaving now because of just how much pressure there is
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think a large percentage of, of, of my colleagues, you know, if they didn't have children to support through studies or things like that or other other financial um, commitments would see where they could to try and reduce what they're doing or retire altogether because it's just so draining. And what you don't want to do is drive yourself into the ground and then end up being so sick that you can't enjoy your retirement or your time outside. And I think that's the problem that if you're just constantly trying to make ends meet, that there's no other joy in your life. And that becomes incredibly depressing. So, yeah, we really need to look at how we're going to address this.
1: You've spoken a little bit there just about the experiences of, of others and, and people that you're working with. But I know that you in the past have had challenges with burnout yourself. I know you said that you had to take time out um, a few years ago. What could you sort of tell us about that and sort of what what led to that?
2: So I was an eight session partner in a busy practice in a deprived part of East Lothian and eight sessions, meaning I was working 50, 55 hour weeks easily and just feeling completely overwhelmed. It got to the point where, you know, I remember little pop ups coming on the screen. You had to deal with people's quaff things and people would come in with various problems and they might have just come in with a sore toe, but really they would start to drop hints that they were quite stressed and depressed. But I just didn't have the headspace, the capacity, or anything to do the best GP job and address those things. I just dealt with the immediately facing problem that I had coming to me. And it made me realize that I, I A, wasn't sleeping well, uh, um, I wasn't feeling good, I wasn't enjoying my life outside of medicine because it was constantly on my mind. I was working most weekends, um, logging in from home, and other things. And I just thought something had to give. And I was lucky that my partners were really supportive at the time. And I managed to cut down to six sessions, which lifted a huge load off me. You know? And I actually managed to avoid going off sick altogether at that point and managed to just cut down to six sessions. And then I filled up my spare time, if you like, with other things, which I think a lot of us GPs are lucky that we do can develop portfolio careers and can do those things, which enabled, means that we're not not working, but we're just not doing patient facing uh work which at a certain point becomes too overwhelming and too draining so i was lucky that just that drop in two sessions made it manageable for me and i avoided a major long term out um, which i think unfortunately too many of my colleagues keep pushing to the point when they just have to stop Um, but i was supported at the time
1: because how unsafe is it for those who are feeling like that, but are sort of continuing because either they have to, or because they just don't have, they feel like they don't have the option to to take a break? I
2: think it just becomes all consuming. And we're, we're seeing, you know, higher numbers of mental health problems. Doctors are, are needing antidepressant and anti-anxiety medication. Um, You know, it's impacting on their personal life. So our families end up being sacrificed due to our, our work, you know, and and, and certainly when the times when my work has been busy and my, my work came first and my family came second, and, and it's only now that I'm out of that situation and, and, and have a lot more control over my workload as a locum that I'm able to look back and go, gosh, my work always came first and my family came second. And, you know, you, you have to reflect on that at a certain point and say, to what cost do I do what I'm doing at the level that I'm doing? Um And ultimately, how is that then affecting um, other aspects of my life, but also then how is it affecting my patients?
1: How are you finding that in terms of being a locum now? Is this is this a sort of more manageable for you? Are you happier doing doing that?
2: I'm very lucky. I've, I've managed to get a, a two-day-a-week job as a clinical advisor for Chest, Heart and Stroke Scotland, which is a, is a charity, um, plus doing four sessions a week as a locum. And it's brilliant. You know, my patients get the best of me now because I have the energy. Um, I'm not distracted by other things. I can just focus on them. Um, and yet I get to do something else that that... That I really enjoy, um, uh, but that also pays the bills. You know, it, it, I'm very lucky that I've, I've I've landed in this position, but um, you know, I I certainly wouldn't rule it out again in the future at a different stage in my life. But it's got to be a lot better than what it is now for me to ever consider going back into it.
1: I know that patient safety, obviously, it's, it's affected by um, practitioners being unsafe and having unsafe workloads. Um, naturally, people will get tired and well, it's more likely that they'll make mistakes. I understand that that's sort of one of the major concerns of the current situation that's facing the profession that the, the campaign is trying to to highlight.
2: Yeah, I I think we know that a safe number of patient contacts per day is 25. Um, And I think now the average in England is hitting 37. So that's 12 more people than what's deemed safe. GPs are having to, on average, deal with. So what that means is that patient will contact you. And if you're you're the last patient of the day and you've got mental health problems and you need to talk about them, it's not necessarily a question of how safe is, is that in terms of you know, you're going to, is the GP going to make a mistake, but they're not going to have the energy to sit and listen and give you the care that you deserve. But yes, if it, if it is at the end of a long day and a patient's got a problem and, and, and then you start to get decision fatigue and you can't work out well, what am I supposed to do with that blood result? Or what am I supposed to do with and should I refer them or shouldn't I refer them? And and it all becomes completely overwhelming. Um, so I think some of us probably then end up doing too much in order to just protect ourselves and protect our patients. And yes, sadly, mistakes will be made. We are humans and these things happen. So, you know, we need to cut down those number of patient contacts per day in order to make decision-making safer.
1: So I guess that's given us a good flavour of the pressures on general practice and, and on uh, practitioners what would you say has sort of caused general practice to get into this mess? And I mean that in the best possible way, in the sense that we know workloads are just too high. It, it would be great just to hear what you think has, has caused this.
2: I mean, there's just, we've seen years and years of underinvestment in general practice. There has not been enough funding investment. Everything from premises, you know, our premises are just dire. So even if we can recruit more staff, we've got nowhere to put them. So, you know, in Scotland, we have a contract where we, we are um, the, the health and social care partnerships um, um, employ f- uh, physios and um, pharmacists. And that's lovely if you can even get them in the first place. But when you can get them, there's nowhere to put them. So even when we do have more staff, that's a big issue. Um, the overall underinvestment. So just general underinvestment in general practice. If we had been able to recruit all these people ourselves... We know that we would have done a much better job than when they're having to be recruited centrally through big, complicated contracts and recruitment drives and all the rest of it. And we know that there's a huge load of of, of workload shift from secondary care to primary care and the funding that has not come with that. So for years, if you think 20 years ago, if a patient had high blood pressure, they'd go to hospital and be admitted and have blood pressure tablets started then. Now we don't seek help. and We've even hit their their fourth or fifth agent. We deal with that, but no money has come from secondary care to primary care to manage that. Not only are we dealing with all our own patients, we're dealing with all the secondary care patients. And then also the fallout of the pandemic. So long, long, long waiting lists And then you have, for example, you know, Mrs. X has got a sore hip that needs to be replaced. She's going to be waiting two years for hip replacement. In that time, she's going to become socially isolated. Her mental health is going to deteriorate. She may be even dementing in that time. And who has to pick up those pieces? Us. There's there's no one else to help support that system. So all these things together have led to this point. And that, on top of the pensions and all the rest of it, you know, it, it, it's just this perfect storm.
1: We all know that the government recently admitted that it was looking unlikely it was going to recruit the 6,000 um, additional GPs it's, it's promised um, by 2024. Speaking as a, as a sort of frontline GP, just how frustrating is that 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 particular promise isn't going, well, it looks like it's not going to be met?
2: You just can't see when it's going to get better. And you can't see that anyone's really thought about this very hard (laughs) in terms of, you know, it feels like they're just thinking from government to government rather than actually the reality of what's happening and who gets left behind, us, you know, and and the patients with alongside us. So it just feels all terribly short-sighted and I knew that was never going to materialise. Where were they going to come from? We all knew it, but it didn't happen.
1: I think there has been quite an emphasis on recruitment, but maybe retention has been... Not given as as much prominence by the government. Would you say that that's something that definitely needs to get better?
2: Absolutely. I mean, if 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 it was a job that was manageable, we wouldn't all be leaving in droves, you know. So that it, it doesn't take a, a you know a, a brain surgeon to work that one out. Um, and I think you know I've I've already you know alluded to the pension stuff, but that is a huge issue. And there, there's a huge numbers of doctors, and if they just fix that bit alone, we'd be able to retain. A significant number of doctors who've got a wealth of knowledge and experience, you know, um, who would probably quite happily stay on. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen articles in the BMA and other places at BMJ and other places where you see these doctors who are retiring and the huge tax penalties they've been hit with that totally, you know, that never should have happened. So when we talk about retention, we've got to make it a better job and we've got to make it one that's affordable.
1: And just going now, I, I suppose, onto, onto funding, I think it's it's been pointed out, well, I think it's continually pointed out that general practice, it doesn't actually get sort of that bigger fraction of um, of NHS funding um, compared to other parts of, of the system. How would increased funding help to improve general practice if it were to sort of receive some more from, from the government?
2: I think what we've seen is with general practice is that general practitioners are incredibly savvy business people who can really make a lot from very little and it wouldn't take a lot of extra funding to help us directly employ staff that we know can make the situation better. So directly employing physios, directly employing nurses other allied healthcare professionals, people that we can negotiate sensible contracts with that work around their family needs, et cetera, rather than going through big corporations. I think this is the problem. There's always been this fear that if you give the GPs the money, they're just going to pocket it all and run off with it. But we know full well that actually we we work really well with not very much and we can really turn those situations around. So you know, I think directly, directly investing, GPs can then use it in the best way that they know how, because what a GP up in Case Ness or Elgin, is going to be different from an inner city GP in London. And you can't apply the same model across all of those, those practices in, in the same funding way, they have to be able to use their money sensibly to work around the needs of their patients. So, you know, I think this is where, you know, we could look at, you know, what psychologists could we get inputted that would know the community? What other aspects, other allied healthcare professionals could we employ in a way that would help relieve the burden? And I think that's something that we really, you know, we really need to look at more, more carefully and trust that GPs are going to use that money well, because they will.
1: And yeah, just going back to the campaign, so obviously I mentioned their the survey results out that sort of focus on GP wellbeing and, um, and also abuse that they've suffered in practice. So, so one of the revealing stats was that more than half of GPs and their staff um, have experienced mental abuse in the course of their job in, in the past year. Just wanted to ask quickly, how important is it that the campaign is, is sort of banging the drum about this and increasing awareness about um, the struggles that GPs might have mentally?
2: I think ultimately GPs want to do a good job and they want to be good GPs for their patients. And if GPs are being abused and are mentally unwell as a consequence, then they're not going to be able to do the job that they want to do and patients are going to suffer as a consequence. I mean, I think it is it is crazy that that we are in this situation now and that, you know, we look at all the security measures that people are having to go through to protect their staff. And I see my receptionist day in, day out, you know, abuse held at them down the phone um, and in what other sector does this occur? I mean, it's just, it's just not on. So I think it's about a general message to everyone, be kind. Um, but in, if you're not, the consequences are only going to fall back on the patients because people are going to go off sick and they're not going to be able to do their jobs. So ultimately, and it, it changes the way in which we work as well. And it puts our heckles up in the way in which we are willing to open our doors and and and, and put ourselves in a vulnerable position. So Yeah it's all it's all comes back to the patient um at the end of the day and, and that's what we need to make sure that in protecting our staff that they get the best treatment as well
1: will, we'll of course sort of link to that video from the group on the article on that uh, goes up on the website but just as a as a final question i just wanted to talk about the campaign just a tiny bit more and what people can expect from it in the in the next few months will there sort of be more surveys and videos or I don't know how much you can actually tell us?
2: Well I mean you've already alluded to the video that's going to be featuring GPs talking about the pressures in general practice. Um, Over the coming months they're going to be launching more creative activations to draw attention to the campaign and its calls to action. So we need to look out for these on social media. Um, There's going to be more revealed soon as as time goes on Um, and LMC's are also going to be helping uh, to lead the campaign and that's going to be launched at the LMC conference in In May. Um, And also in the background, the campaign is constantly working in the background, building relationships with politicians, politicians, the media, and GP community. And hopefully, from that, more will grow.
1: And for those GPs who maybe are interested in the campaign and and the work that's being done, how can they get involved or how can they help?
2: Follow us on Twitter at the @RebuildGP tag or even um, email hello at rebuildgp.co.uk.
1: As I said with the video, we'll we'll link to that in the um, in the article that goes up on the website. For today, that was everything, and yeah, it was really nice of you to be able to join us, Amy.
0: Thank you very much for having me today. Well that's it for this week. Thanks so much to Luke and of course to Dr Amy Small for taking the time to talk to us. We're back next week with our regular news review. In the meantime you can keep up to date with all the news affecting primary care and access a range of other information and resources on our website at gponline.com.